But what you may not know is that it actually comes from Scripture. Maybe you noticed that in our psalm. It actually comes from the original Old King James Version of the Bible, which some of you may have a copy of somewhere in your house. And uh, Psalm 8 verse 2 says this, Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. And then we next hear it in Scripture when Jesus quotes it in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, chapter 21, verse 16. Have ye never read, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, thou hast perfected praise? Scripture reveals that we should never be surprised by the ability of children to say the most profound things. It reminds me of the story I heard of a pastor at a church who one Sunday noticed a little boy called Alex outside in the lobby of the church staring up at a plaque on the wall. And it was one of those plaques that churches often have that um, is covered with names and you'll see small American flags mounted on either side of it. And the seven-year-old boy had been staring up at this plaque for some time. So the pastor walked by and he stood beside the boy and he quietly said, well, good morning, Alex. He said, oh, good morning, pastor replied uh, Alex, and he was still focused on this plaque, though. Pastor Miggy, what is this? And Alex, uh, Alex asked him, and uh, the pastor said, well, son, it's a memorial to all the young men and women who died in the service. And soberly, they stood together, staring at this large plaque for a little longer, and then finally, little Alex's voice was barely audible when he asked, which service, the 9 o'clock or the 10.30? <laughs> <laughs> uh, ah... On a more serious note, though, <laughs> I don't want to know who, which of you have died in this service before, but on a more serious note, though, in her book, Spontaneous Activity and Education, Maria Montessori, who you've probably heard of, uh, because there's a whole way of schooling that has been established around the globe that's been named after her and her way of doing things. Well, she shares in this book about her experiences with children and the incredibly profound things, truly profound things, that she's heard them say. On one occasion, she encountered a seven-year-old boy who'd been deprived of any religious education, no experience in the faith whatsoever. And he'd been told by another boy the theory of evolution according to the principles of Darwin. Well, after the explanation, the boy asked, well, where did the first creature come from? The first, answered his friend, was formed by chance. And at these words, the child laughed out loud. And calling his mother over, he said excitedly, Just listen, what nonsense! Life was formed by chance. That's impossible. When he was asked how he thought life was formed, the child responded with conviction, It's God. Well, consider another encounter that Montessori had, this time with a three-year-old girl who grew up with no religious influence. She didn't go to a Christian preschool like we have here at Holy Cross. She had no one at home who believed, not even her grandmother, who herself was an atheist and had never spoken about God to her. And she'd also never gone to a church. Well, one day she asked her father, also not a believer, about the origin of the world. Where does the world come from, Daddy? And her father replied in a manner consistent with his ideas, with a this discourse about what was materialistic in nature. And then he added, however, there are those who say that all this comes from a very powerful being, and they call him God. At this point, the little girl began to run like a whirlwind around the room in a burst of joy and exclaimed, I knew what you told me wasn't true. It's him. It's him. 
Maybe you've experienced something like this with your own kids, maybe with your grandkids or your godchildren, or maybe the kids that you teach in school. I know we have some teachers out there. I know that I have experienced it with my own children. And what I've come to realize is that it is foolish to underestimate what God's doing in the hearts and minds of our children. It's foolishness. And in our gospel reading today, we see that not only shouldn't we underestimate them, in fact, we are called to become like them, like them, having a childlike faith in order that we too might enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's really a very profound statement by Jesus, especially in a culture that took little notice of children and treated them no better than a dog or other animals. And those weren't treated in a good way in that culture. So why does Jesus say this? And what does he mean? Well, let's turn to our passage from Matthew chapter 18 and let's see what Jesus is trying to teach each one of us here today. Now, a favorite conversation of many sports fans, including myself, is to debate who is the GOAT? Right? Who is the goat? Now, you might be sitting there, what on earth do you mean? Well, can anyone tell me what's the goat? There we go. I heard a lot of male voices. That's not meant to be sexist, but I heard a lot of male voices. A lot of men have this debate, but I'm sure women do too. Um, it is the greatest of all time, and typically it happens in the context of having a conversation about particular sports, right? So you might be having a debate about who's the greatest of all time in soccer, and you might say, oh, I think it's Pele, and someone might say, well, no, it's clearly Maradona. Or if you're of a different generation, you might say, well, it's clearly Messi, or, or maybe it's Ronaldo, okay? Those debates go on. Or maybe if you're a football fan and you like the NFL, you might argue oh, if it's Tom Brady or Peyton Manning, but of course we all know it's either Aaron Rodgers or Bart Starr right? (laughs) Clearly. Come on, go check out the records on Bart Starr. Um, In baseball, you know, there's lots of choices. Could be Barry Bonds, could be Willie Mays, but really it's Babe Ruth, right? I mean, it's Babe Ruth. Uh, What about basketball? Tons of choices there. You might have have a ton of different opinions here, but it could be Shaquille O'Neal. It could be Michael Jordan. It could be LeBron James. And the list goes on and on and on. And so it does with all the different sports you can talk about with this. But you can take it to music. You can take it to theater. You can take it to movies. You can have a conversation about who is the goat, all right? Who is the goat when it comes to Olympic curling, right? There's probably a goat for Olympic curling, isn't there? Well, in our story today, we see that the context of Jesus' teaching is that the disciples are having a debate about who is the goat in the kingdom of heaven. Who's the goat, Jesus? And what their question reveals is that they still believe that greatness in God's kingdom comes through human endeavor, hard work, effort, and heroic accomplishments. But they're way off the mark, aren't they? Uh, Kent Hughes writes this, What a question! Had they forgotten the first beatitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Had they forgotten the faith-filled Roman centurion's humility? Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. Had they forgotten that father's mustard seed faith, a man came up to Jesus and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son. Yes, yes, yes. It seems they had forgotten. Now you might think, well, that's a little harsh on the disciples. But as we'll see in verse 4, Jesus' response and then what follows indicates the disciples didn't really have a pure motive here in asking the question. There was guile in what they were asking, right? It wasn't just simple curiosity. The sense is more like this. Jesus, in your expert uh, estimation, which one of us is now the greatest? Which one of us? And they've missed the point. 
And so Jesus goes on to give them, like every good teacher does, a valuable object lesson, which brings us to verses 2 through 4. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is teaching them that to be the greatest, in fact, to even just enter God's kingdom, catch that, even to enter his kingdom, they have to have faith like a child. Now, there's two really important things to note here, though, okay? First of all, entry into the kingdom of heaven doesn't happen one day when we die. Did you catch that? Entry into the kingdom of heaven doesn't happen one day when we die. This is a common misconception among believers and non-believers. No, Scripture's clear that it happens when it's the moment that we choose to follow Jesus. When we repent and believe in him, we enter into the kingdom of heaven. And it's when we're born again, as he puts it, and as it, when he's teaching Nicodemus. This is when we enter into life in the kingdom and life in its fullness, right here, right now, here on earth. Now, second of all, catch this. Jesus isn't saying here that they need to be innocent like a child. You see, Scripture reveals that even children are tainted by sin from conception. That's the doctrine of original sin. And Guess what? Experience backs it up, right? Just ask any of the parents here in our congregation who have a toddler right now, or who've had a toddler. Or I see some of our preschool teachers out here. Sadly, our preschool children are tainted with sin, right? They do things that are wrong. Even these cute little two, three, four-year-old kids. Now, he's using this little child as an object lesson on the humility that comes with vulnerability. Vulnerability. Listen to what one commentator says. Jesus celebrates the humility that comes from the child's weakness, defenselessness, and vulnerability. The child can really do nothing for himself or herself and will die if left alone. It is this kind of humility that Jesus uses as a visual aid to contrast the world's form of greatness to the greatness of the kingdom of heaven. And again, that brings me right back to the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount that we looked at a few weeks ago. Just consider the first three. Do you remember these? First one, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? For theirs will be what? The kingdom of heaven, yeah? Second one, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And then blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Here we get a sense that disciples are people characterized not by strength, but by a knowledge of their weakness, right? They know their weakness and they know their need for God. I love that song we sing by Matt Ma, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. It's a beautiful moment of recognition that we are weak. Disciples are not those who proudly boast of their own abilities and the way that they can make it on their own. They are, as Jesus is revealing, childlike, not childish note, which suggests some kind of immaturity, right? But spiritually mature enough to know that it's only through God's mercy that they or anyone else can enter the kingdom of heaven and find greatness, the greatness that comes from having one's sin forgiven and being filled with kingdom life. You see, not only will a childlike faith help us to enter the kingdom of heaven, but also it will help us to experience the kingdom in all its fullness right here, right now. Consider, right, the awe and wonder that a child has when it first encounters something new. Think about like the first time maybe you've taken a child or a grandchild to the beach 
And they just go, whoa, what is this thing, right? And they're thinking, can I go in it? They're a little bit scared. These are these big waves, but they've got all this sand, which is really great. And then, and then they, once they get in the water, it's exciting, even if they get knocked down. There's this awe and wonder about it. Or perhaps maybe if you've ever given a child a trampoline, we gave one to one of our kids, and the excitement and the joy, the fact that they have a trampoline, and the first time they get to bounce on it, they're so excited about it. Or maybe a time that they go to a playground for the first time, it's just the best playground they've ever been to. It's awe. And also consider the willingness of a child to ask a parent to help them and then to provide for them over and over again. They're willing to do that. These are childlike qualities that God desires in us, that we continue to be full of joy and wonder as we encounter the Lord afresh each day, and that we continue to depend on our Heavenly Father to meet our needs in all situations, walking with Him and praying to Him constantly. Yes, a childlike faith doesn't just get us into the kingdom. It also helps us to experience the kingdom in all its fullness. Well, moving on, in the final two verses, we see that Jesus isn't only concerned about his adult disciples. He's also greatly concerned for children. He loves children. And what we see here is that humility isn't just the source of a right relationship with God. It's also the source of right relationships with others, having the right idea of who we are will help us to love others, whoever they may be, and whatever their status may be in our society. You see, contrary to the culture at his time, which saw children as half-human until they reached puberty and considered young girls as really disposable or as a potential source of income through slavery or prostitution, Jesus, he advances the cause of children. And that really shouldn't be a surprise to us, right? Because he does this for women. He does this for the oppressed. He does this for the marginalized. He does it for the handicapped. He does it for immigrants. And the list goes on. And in fact, God does this throughout all of Scripture, always elevating all people to the status of equals with each other as image bearers of himself, as revealed in Genesis chapter 1. Here, though, his elevation of children, note this, comes in the form of a warning to those of us who call ourselves adults. Whoever receives one such child in my name, verse 5, receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That's a pretty stark imagery, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever seen a millstone, but you can still see them in Israel when you go there and in other parts of the world too. And it's this large circular stone with a hole in the middle. And it was a mechanism, part of a mechanism that was used to grind corn, okay, when they didn't have machinery to do that. And it was incredibly heavy and generally pulled by a donkey. And what Jesus is saying is this huge stone will be put around the neck of someone who causes one of these little ones to sin. And he's using typical Jewish hyperbole, you know, overemphasizing to get his point about the seriousness of causing a child to fall away. It's also worth noting, though, that the term Matthew uses for children here, little ones, can also be used for those who are more vulnerable in society. We might say the least of these, very similar term. And so Bishop N.T. Wright says this, if this seems violent or extreme, Perhaps it's because we too have undervalued the little ones Jesus is talking about. Children in particular, of course, 
but also all those who are powerless, vulnerable, at risk in this world. Exploitation of such people is inevitable, granted, but those who indulge in it are given this warning. Far sterning than anything that Jesus says about what we think as the big sins, such as murder, adultery, and theft. They matter, but causing one of the little ones to stumble or trip up matters even more. Harsh words to address a harsh reality. It does sound harsh, doesn't it? But what we see here is good news. It's good news, at least for those who choose to follow him. It's the good news that the God we follow is just. He is just. And that even if those who exploit children in our world or exploit the most vulnerable in our world don't see justice in this world, they will experience it in the next. And it will be in a terrible way. Well, as we come to a close today, I want to ask you just one question. It's the obvious one. Do you have faith like a child? Do you have faith like a child? You know, one of the joys of having an office in this building is that I get to be a part of our preschool each day and to hear the sweet and sometimes not so sweet, Christine and Marla can back me up on that, right? The sweet noises of children echoing throughout this building. And one of my favorite times is when I get to be with the kids in chapel. They do it weekly, Miss Marla leads that, and I go in just once a month to play my guitar and lead a birthday song with the kids for all the kids who have their birthday that month. And it's a really sweet time, and it's amazing because I get to watch them participate in the worship of the Lord. They're dancing, they're singing, they're hopping, they're skipping. They're just full of joy and excitement. And one of my favorite, uh, there's a couple of kids who are twins. They've got these twin boys who are two years old. And I was watching them dance the other day in chapel, and it was really fun because the Olympics was going on at the time. And you know, you know how you get the speed skaters and how they, they do speed skating? Well, these boys were doing this as they were doing this together in sync, like the speed skaters from side to side in sync. And they're twins, so you kind of expect that. But here they were, and all I could think was, oh, they're going for a gold medal. <laughs> they're going for a gold medal. But it's really cute. They've got this joy, and I, I love it. And sadly, it's a childlike abandonment that I think many of us have lost in our worship of Jesus, if we're honest, and also in our relationship with him as we go throughout the week. The joy and the wonder are long gone. And, and most people, if they were to see how we worship and how we live, might think that Jesus actually never rose from the tomb on Easter. In fact, he's still buried way down in the ground. That He never conquered sin and death and actually we're living in perpetual Lent, which sounds terrible to me, and we've never become Easter people. And I wonder why this is. Why do we live like this? Perhaps we're too proud, not humble enough to let go and let God, as they say. Maybe we're worried about what others might think of us. You know, perhaps we bought into another cultural saying that I grew up with, and maybe you did too, that children should be seen and not heard. Have you heard that one? Children should be seen and not heard. But experiencing the life of God in this life requires humility like a child. It requires it. And becoming like a little child means that we maintain the wonderful and beautiful characteristics and qualities of children that life in this sinful world, well, it tends to beat out of us. Things like tenderness of conscience, openness about emotions and feelings, creativity and imagination, wonder and awe, joy, eternal hope, playfulness and humor, trust, easy forgiveness, undying love, boundless exuberance and energy, always thinking the best about life and other people, being willing to learn and to grow. These are the sorts of qualities that tend to define children. 
but which gets stripped out of us as people as we encounter sin and the brokenness of this world. You know, as adults, we might get bored with flowers, get bored with bugs and sunsets or sunrises. We lose delight in talking with others about nothing. We become jaded and disinterested, and adults hold grudges. They harbor fears. Adults refuse to forgive. Adults remember slights. Adults lose hope because their hopes have been dashed and destroyed so many times. Adults do things because they've always done it that way and have trouble imagining anything different. But children don't behave in these kinds of ways. And neither did Jesus. You know, one of the things I think that attracted people to Jesus was the fact that he was childlike. It doesn't mean that he wasn't wise and understanding, far from it. He was childlike because he was full of the wonder of life. He had a hope for humanity. He loved the beauty of creation. He lived in awe of life and of his God and in awe of humanity as well. And this awe was contagious. People saw how he lived and how life should be lived. And Jesus revealed how God intended life to be lived. In other words, those who begin to live life like Jesus are those who begin to see heaven come down to earth. They begin to see the rule and reign of God unfold in their own life. Jesus taught that if you want to experience God's life in this life, the kingdom of heaven, you need to become like a little child once again. Listen to how one person puts it, and I'll close with this. Do you want to enter the kingdom like a child? If so, then ask questions. Lots of questions. But also have fun, laugh, play, imagine, sing, dance, hope, dream, forgive, create, trust, live life to the full, be excited, be adventuresome, be tender of heart, and most of all, love. When you live this way, you will become like a little child and will see the kingdom of heaven rise again in your life. Today I want to pray for us as we close. The Holy Spirit will help us to recapture some of that in our own lives. So let's pray. Come Holy Spirit, where we are jaded and tired, where we have lost the awe and the wonder of who you are and what you have created, would you come and reignite in us a passion for you, a passion to love you and to love others? Would you give us um, the ability to let down our guard where we have put up guards? Would you give us the ability to be people who are more concerned about what you think than what others think, that we might love well and live well as we are a part of your kingdom here on this earth right now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.